0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, welcome back to another session in this study in the book of Colossians. Uh, In the last session, we were looking at chapter 1, verse 24, through chapter 2, verse 7. And we were specifically looking at this idea of the ministry of the mystery. And in today's session, I want to look at the second part of that. So what I want to do is I want to read this passage again just so it's fresh in our hearts and in our minds. So this is Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 24. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present you complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all of those who have not seen my face in the flesh, so that their hearts may be encouraged, having been held together in love even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding under the full knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. Again, it's an incredible passage, and I wish we had time to walk through this section by section because there's so much that is going on in this particular section. But again, just as a reminder, we are looking at more of a broad view of the book of Colossians. And at some point, I would love for you to just walk through verse by verse, passage by passage, and examine the incredible truths contained in this book. Now, as I already mentioned in this last session, we were looking at this idea of Paul's ministry and message. And one of the things we talked about is this idea that Paul has been chosen to be a minister according to God's stewardship to declare a message. Well, what was the message that he was proclaiming? Oh, it was the marvelous mystery, which is all about Jesus. That the one thing that God has been screaming about from the very beginning of time is Jesus, 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 Jesus. That on every page of scripture, he is seen. And that is such an incredible thought. And now that mystery, which has been hidden for ages and generations, the Spirit has now been revealing to us that it is all about Christ. And as we talked about in the last session, the incredible reality of Christianity is that I am in Christ and Christ lives in me. And you need both of those in Christianity. That it's not just me in Christ, but it's the fact that the living God himself through his Spirit has come to indwell my life. And Paul says, that is the message that I am proclaiming, that it is Christ himself. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, in this session, I want to look at the second aspect, at least of what we're going to be examining in this section, which is all about this idea of the struggle and the suffering. Uh, it's interesting to me that Paul in the section is talking about this ministry that he's been given by God. And he says, I am overwhelmed with struggling and suffering and laboring. So let's look at this idea. And I'm calling it the difficulty of, of ministry. So let me just read a couple of verses. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, verse 29, and chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is a lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh, on behalf of his church, which is, sorry, on behalf of his body, which is the church. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me in power. For I want you to understand how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all of those who have not seen my face in the flesh. Paul uses in this section several different words for difficulty, for striving, for, for struggle. Uh, let me just give you a few of those. Uh, for example, he says that I am suffering For your sake, and I rejoice in that suffering. The word suffering has this idea of a great or a state of great suffering uh, and distress due to adversity, pain, or suffering. Uh, He says, I labor, which is this idea of hard work or toil or to do some wearisome labor unto extreme fatigue. He says, I strive, which means to agonize or to engage in a contest uh, or to make every effort to exert much energy. And the idea is like a wrestling match. Uh, And he also uses the word struggle, which means like a fight, a contest, a race, and a struggle. Again, I find it interesting that he uses some of the language of the gymnasium. He uses the language of the culture. He says, here I I am, I'm wrestling, I'm just sweating, I'm toiling, I'm laboring. I mean, this is a lot of effort that I'm making on your behalf. I do really love what he says and the fact that it is, I'm laboring according to God's working in my life. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time because we just don't have the time, but there's this idea that God and his overwhelming strength and his overwhelming power has energized my life. So though I'm pouring my life out and though I'm just weary and though I'm just, just in full exertion in this labor on your behalf, it is God himself who is energizing and enabling me to pull this off. So don't come away with this idea that Paul's struggle and striving and all this intensity is Paul in his own ability doing what he can In ministry. Rather, the picture is God and his overwhelming ability is strengthening Paul to labor on behalf of those uh, in the early church. But again, Paul keeps talking about this struggle in the midst of the ministry. Isn't it fascinating that the moment your life becomes wrapped up in the message of the mystery, which is all about Jesus, struggle comes to your life. In fact, that is promised all through the Gospels. Jesus kept saying stuff like, hey, if they persecuted me, woo, they're going to persecute you. Hey, if I face difficulty, hey, you better be expecting this thing too. As Christians, our life is not promised ease and comfort and painless joy and bliss. In fact, I think the reality is you become a Christian and things actually get harder. Now you have a target on your back and the enemy of God wants to take you out. There is a struggle and a difficulty in life. That's true for non-believers. That is true for believers. But there's something that gives us hope and joy, which is Christ in the middle of our difficulties. But again, I want to come back to this concept of what Paul seems to be suggesting, that there's this labor, that there's this toil, that there's this struggle, that there's a suffering on your behalf, he says to those in Colossians, to, to the Colossians. He says that here I am, I'm proclaiming the grand mystery. Here I am proclaiming this one message of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of proclaiming the message, there is this this deep agony and pain and toil and suffering that my life experiences. Have you ever experienced that? Have you noticed that the more your life becomes focused on Jesus Christ, the more your life gets wrapped up in the simplicity that is Christ, that somehow the world just does not like it? I find it intriguing that the world, for the most part, if you want to talk about God, fine, you can talk about God. But the moment you start talking about Jesus being God, that's when the world starts having an issue. Hey, don't you be judgmental. Hey, you can't say that stuff around me. We, we, have, we have a culture today that doesn't mind talking about the, the smorgasbord of gods, the, the plethora of just religious options. But the moment you make Jesus the focus of your life— the moment you make Jesus the essence of your message, well, then the world has an issue with that. See, you can you can be crazy about sports. You can be crazy about entertainment. You can be crazy about the latest movie. Hey, you can be crazy about sexuality. You can be crazy about and just hey, you you can be a huge fan. Hey, you you can pin yourself up from head to toe. You can go down to the to the arena or the stadium. You can hoot and holler and scream, and the world just says woo. Yes, he's just a big fan. You do that for Jesus, and they'll silence you. Why is that? Because there's something about Jesus Christ that puts pressure on the world around us. I love what Jim Elliott once said. He said, I want, oh God, he says, I want to be a decision man. I want to be a man that when the world encounters my life, that they're literally forced into a decision. Are they gonna buy into the reality and the message that I am proclaiming, which is Jesus, or are they gonna to have to run away or silence my life? See, when you get into this idea of martyrdom, uh, the word martyr actually just means witness. And yeah, typically we understand as a martyr as someone who dies for their faith, but in the New Testament context, a martyr was someone who literally was a witness. And the idea was is that, that their life was so wrapped up in a single message that it was putting pressure on the world around them. That when the world encountered someone's life and that witness of a message, that the world was either gonna have to make the decision to buy into that message or that the world was gonna have to silence the message. Well, the only way to silence a message is either you, you, know, you plug your ears and you run away or you have to silence that voice. And so there's all these people who are dying for their faith, for this witness, this declaration of a message and so we just began to understand, well, if you're going to be a witness, you may have to die for that message. And again, it's that Greek word martyr. What would your life look like if you said, Lord, I want to be so wrapped up in a single message? As we talked about in the last session, that this whole message is about Jesus. As we talked about in the two sessions ago, when we we're talking about the preeminence of Christ, this is all about Jesus, that He is to at first place in absolutely every area of my life. If you begin to live that way, what you're going to find out is that the the world doesn't like that. The world doesn't want you to be the fanatic for Jesus. Again, you can be a fanatic for sports. You can be a fanatic for entertainment. You can be a fanatic down at the stadium, but don't be a fanatic for God. Because the moment Jesus becomes the, the essence, the focus, the centrality of your life, the world just doesn't like it. In fact, sadly, it seems like in today's culture, even people in the church don't like it. That If if you're coming to church because it's the thing to do, it's the cultural understanding, it's the social club idea, but when you see someone who is radically going after Jesus and their whole life is about one single message, well, that's going to put pressure on your life and you're either going to have to buy in or you're going to have to silence that voice. So you got to get a, get a hold of this idea that, that Christianity, see, the whole prosperity gospel thing, I, I think, took Christianity in the worst direction because the prosperity gospel was all about name it and claim it and nab it and grab it and you wish for it, God will give it to you and, and big houses and new cars and hey, all the riches. And, and, and I'm sure, I have no problem, whatever, but I don't see that promised. Yeah, you may get it, fine, whatever. But you know what you are promised by Jesus in Scripture? Suffering, trials, persecution, difficulty. Which tells us, if I'm not facing suffering and trials and persecution for my faith, maybe it's because I'm not actually radical. Maybe it's because I'm not actually fully living this thing out. Maybe it's because there's a there's an issue in my heart that I'm not fully living out single message of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I'm so concerned that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent that you too would be persuaded and drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. And the church today is so wrapped up in being distracted by a whole myriad of things and we have lost the simplicity that is Christ and again, if you go after Jesus and you make him the message and you make him the focus and, and your life is about the centrality of Christ and the preeminence of him and, and he's first place in all things and, and your life is just all about the simplicity of Jesus, I promise you're going to face suffering. Hey, you're going to face pressure. Hey, the world's going hey, to come after you. In fact, you're going to be misunderstood. And in fact, in fact, the church is probably going to put some pressure against you. And, but is he worth it? Yes. Yes, he is worth it. So again, listen to what Paul is saying. He's talking about being a minister of a mystery. That he has one single message that he's proclaiming. Oh, it's Jesus. He says, but in the midst of proclaiming that message, there's this difficulty that I'm experiencing. There's this toil and a labor and a striving. And yes, God has empowered me. Yes, God's enabled me to do this. But wow, I'm suffering for your sakes, in fact, if you want to read about his great suffering, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and just read his list of sufferings. You know, the shipwrecks and the stoning and the, the beatings and the scourgings and the kind of nine tells and the, the fastings and the, I mean, he just has the list. It just Paul's life was difficult. He faced a lot of hardship. In fact, you look at Jesus' life. Jesus faced a lot of hardship and persecution and misunderstanding. And, and not just with the world, but with the, with the religious leaders. And you're promised the same thing. That, wow, you get to face trials. Wow, you get to face tribulation and difficulty. And, and that's not something to run away from. That's something to get excited about. Because as Paul says, the living God's going to come and enable you to endure this with joy. But you got to be ready for suffering. you got to be ready that if you're going to make Jesus the message of your life, if he really is going to be preeminent, you will face sufferings. Now, in verse 24, uh, Paul makes a statement which is rather difficult. <laughs> he says uh, this idea of filling up what is lacking. Look at verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking Of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church. Now, when you read through that, that is so confusing. Uh, In fact, I I read dozens of commentaries trying to wrap my mind around, okay, what is Paul trying to say here? Because I'm trying to understand this. He's saying that, okay, I'm gonna rejoice in my suffering for your sake, oh dear Christians in Colossae. And he's then he says, I'm filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of the church. And I'm really, I I struggle. I'm still struggling, actually. (laughs) What does it mean for Paul to say that he is filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions? Because we know that there is nothing lacking in terms of the sacrificial atonement and suffering of Christ. That the cross paid it all. So, So his work, his suffering was totally sufficient. It was efficacious. It was, it was absolutely sufficient. Hey, you can't add anything to the suffering and the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So he completely dealt with sin. He completely dealt with everything. So how on earth can Paul say that he is adding, adding or filling up what is lacking? How can there be anything lacking? That's (laughs) my struggle. And I don't know if I still even have a good answer, but I've been wrestling through this uh, for some time now. I've read again countless commentaries on the on the topic. It is interesting to me, uh, and again, by the way, this is this is such a controversial passage. Uh, thousands and thousands of pages of commentary stuff has been written on it. I have not read it all, just for clarity's sake. Uh, but thousands of pages have been made uh, have written on trying to figure out what this means. There there are a whole bunch of different camps of well, I think it means this, and well, it could mean this, and how about this, and And again, if you want to go down that rabbit trail and get lost, uh, just don't lose Jesus. (laughs) But let me give you a thought. And and this is the best that I've been able to to understand and articulate uh, when it comes to what does it mean for Paul to say that I am filling up and I'm adding, adding a completion to what is lacking in Christ's affliction. It seems to me, again, Jesus paid it all. Uh, that his sacrificial and atoning work on the cross was absolutely sufficient. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It's just, it's just, it is, it is full. And yet there is a reality that until he comes in his second coming, that this world is always going to put pressure, that there's always going to be affliction. There's always going to be suffering in this world on behalf of Christ. That because of this grand message of Jesus, that the world is always going to stand in opposition against it. So until every knee bows and until every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord, it seems like the church as a whole is always going to be facing some version of suffering and difficulty on behalf of Christ. And so that all through the last 2,000 years, there has been a continual filling up of the afflictions of Christ, not in the sacrificial atonement sense, but in the sense that when the church suffers, he suffers. In fact, you, you see that in, Act, in, in Acts chapter 9. Uh, here is Paul. He's persecuting the church, and he goes up to Damascus to deal with the church up there. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus kicks him off the horse and bright light, and, and Jesus speaks to Paul. And, and listen, listen to this statement in Acts chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. It says, Saul fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, pause. If I was Saul, Paul, I would have said, Jesus, uh, I'm not persecuting you. I am persecuting your people. I am trying to destroy the church. Hey, I'm trying to kill them. I'm not touching you. And yet, according to Jesus, when you persecute the church, when the church faces suffering, it's his suffering. Which makes sense. If we are the body, he's the head. Then when the body suffers, the head suffers. So it seems like, just as a potential to understand this passage, that what Paul is saying is, now that I'm experiencing suffering on behalf of the church, now that I am declaring this message, and the world is seeing my suffering I should expect the suffering because the world is not going to like the message. So as I'm proclaiming the message and the world hates the message, on behalf of Christ, I am receiving the joy of being united with him in suffering. Uh, If that didn't make sense to you, I wanted to just give you a quote uh, from a sermon I came across. Again, in the midst of reading countless commentaries across the theological spectrum. I mean, I read, uh, I read, Calvinists. I read non calvinists I read Pentecostals. I mean, I just, I read across the gamut, trying to understand this passage. So wherever you are on the theological spectrum, doesn't really matter. Uh, but I was reading some sermons. I read some Charles Spurgeon stuff, and I came across a sermon that I just want to give you a, a portion of, and I really enjoyed this. And uh, th- this is what John Piper said. He said, I think the context that we just looked at suggests that Paul's sufferings fill up Christ's not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people that they were meant to bless. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth or merit as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known in this world. They are still a mystery. They're hidden to most peoples. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed, extended to all the Gentiles. So the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word feel of what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. I think that is exactly what the words mean in Colossians 1:24 as well. Christ has prepared a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking in nothing except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world and the people of your workplace. God's answer to this lack is to call the people of Christ, people like Paul, to present the afflictions of Christ to the world, to carry them from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. In doing this, we fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We finish what they were designed for, namely a personal presentation to the world of people who do not know about their infinite worth. Again, if you want that full quote, I have it in the, the session notes for this particular session that you can download. Uh, I I, I found that really helpful. I I love that perspective that that the reality of the suffering of Christ must be seen and demonstrated to the world. And so Paul, in his suffering, is showcasing that grand reality. Again, it's the declaration of the mystery. But I do think the other side of that is, as you proclaim the mystery, you will face suffering. And as such, Christ, you're sharing in this suffering. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, said this about the passage, that I thought was helpful, he said there was a time when Paul had persecuted the church and called it to suffer, but now Paul devoted his life to the care of the church. Paul did not ask, as do some believers, what will I get out of it? Instead, he asked, how much will God let me put into it? The fact that Paul was a prisoner did not stop him from ministering to the church. There's this thing biblically that's often called the fellowship of the suffering, that there's this band of believers that get to share in the joy of suffering for the name of Christ. And that fellowship of sufferings really comes from the passage in Philippians 3.10. This is what Philippians, uh, Paul says in Philippians 3.10. Paul says that my desire is that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says, oh, that I might experience not just the resurrection but that I would have fellowship that I would partake in his sufferings that I would be counted worthy to re- to participate to experience the joy of suffering for my savior that is so backwards from the western world in which we live we are doing everything possible to get away from suffering from trials from difficulty and yet Paul says oh it is such a joy and a blessing to be a part of the fellowship of his sufferings. In Acts chapter uh, 5, listen about Peter and the apostles. It says, So they, speaking of Peter and the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So here's Peter and the apostles, the early church. Uh, they're literally brought before the council, the the Sanhedrin, and uh, they're beaten. And, and hey, they're they're, I mean, they're just intensely scrutinized. And they're saying, hey, look, do not speak in that name anymore, or we're gonna give you great problems. And they love going. We got to suffer for the name of Jesus. See, this was a privileged thing to share in the afflictions of Christ, this fellowship of the sufferings. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but it is to glorify God in this name. See, If you're suffering because you did evil or you sinned or because you caused chaos, see, there's no honor in that. But Peter says, wow, if you get to suffer for the name of Christ, if as a Christian you are facing difficulty and persecution and problems and pressure, that is something to rejoice over. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 1.5, Paul says this, Just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is Abundant through Christ. Do you, hear, do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying that we have this great suffering and affliction and it is abundant in Christ. But so is his comfort in the midst of it. I want to quickly talk about this idea of the triumph of tribulation. Over the last year or so, I've, I've been studying this idea of tribulation quite a bit. And one of the things I've just kind of discovered about tribulation biblically And this may surprise you, tribulation is never a bad thing for the Christian. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's a difficulty. Yeah, it's a huge struggle. Yeah, there's probably pain involved. Yeah, there's suffering. But it's always seen as a good thing. Which I do find fascinating is that there's this thing coming, that the second coming of Christ called the great tribulation. And yet, most people in the church today are so scared. Most people in the church are going, oh no, I'm so glad we get it out of here, or oh no, how am I gonna endure? And depending on your in you know, your, your times theology, you're either deathly afraid of having to go through it, or you're really glad you don't have to. But do you realize biblically, tribulation is a good thing? Uh, let me just walk you through that really quickly. In Romans chapter five, listen to what Paul says. This is so profound. He says, not only this, but we exalt, the word means like to boast or to brag, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says, oh, do you know what I'm going to boast and brag in? I'm going to boast and brag about my difficulties and my tribulation. Because I know what God is doing in the midst of my tribulation that he is proving something he's he's developing perseverance and character and hope, and that does not disappoint says Paul so if you know the whole purpose of tribulation, Paul says you can rejoice in it you can actually brag about the difficulties because you know what God is doing in the midst of those trials. Uh, when you look at the word tribulation it's one of two words often in the New Testament. It's the word thalibo and thalipsis. And what's interesting is when you study this out, there's really a couple of ideas that come out of this. The word, both thalibo and thalipsis, is this idea of tribulation or pressure or weight, this idea of compression or difficulty, anguish, trouble, distress, suffering, persecution, affliction, improving, which does not sound (laughs) fun at all. But the words come from this idea of threshing. And so uh, back in that agricultural society, uh, we had all this wheat. And so we go out to the wheat fields, we cut down the wheat fields, we take the wheat and take it to a threshing floor. And so we have all this wheat on the ground and we now need to thresh the wheat. We got to separate the actual kernel of wheat from the chaff. And so what we do is we take some ox oxen and, and we put them in the threshing, uh, on the threshing floor. And the whole purpose of the oxen is to pull a sled but so that the weight of the oxen on their hooves would be pounding that wheat into the ground. Oh, by the way, in this illustration, you're the wheat. (laughs) So you have these oxen who are going to be stomping on your head, and then we tie the oxen to a sled. It was this piece of wood that would be laid down. Someone would stand on the back of it, and on the bottom of it, we would chip away, and we would put these grooves so we could insert rocks and glass and anything else that's really sharp. So you have all these instruments of sharpness being pressed down upon the wheat and as someone stands upon that threshing sled and the ox are, are driving that sled around in circles, then the, the pressure, the heaviness of the ox hooves is stomping into the wheat. Uh, the, the, the metal pieces are really cutting and threshing into, uh, into that wheat and you are being sliced and diced and the word is tribulation, that you are being threshed. And once that takes place, and we take a threshing fork, and we take it, and we, it's like a little rake thing. We throw the wheat in the air, and the kernels, which are heavy, fall to the ground, and the wind takes the chaff and blows it away. Here's what is so fascinating. Paul says, hey, do you know why I can boast and brag and exult in my tribulations? Do you know why that when the, when the ox hooves of life and the threshing sled comes and just slices and dices and creates difficulty and problems in my life, do you know why I can rejoice in that moment? It's because I know the whole purpose of this. See, if you don't know the purpose of why that's happening to you, it is miserable. But if you know the purpose of that tribulation, well, then you can rejoice. And, and here's the concept, and I, I love this. In the midst of tribulation, there is a bettering of something to increase its value. It removes what is unnecessary and that which hinders in order to prepare it for its ultimate intended purpose. See, wheat does not have value except when it's threshed. The whole purpose and the value of wheat comes after the threshing. So get this. God has an ultimate purpose and a plan he wants to do something in and through us. Romans 8, 29 says that his desire is to conform us to the image of Christ. Which makes sense then why the verse right before that, Romans eight twenty eight, that he's working all things according to our good and according to his purpose. Well, why is that? It's so that he's using everything to conform us to the image of Christ. See, Jesus has an ultimate end in your life, which is that he might be seen in and through you, but we are so wrapped up in our selfishness and in our sin and our addictions and and all this little selfish stuff that that chaff, that flesh, must be stripped away. Well, well, how is it removed? Oh, tribulation, difficulty, trials. And if you look back on your life, you'd probably have to agree that the times that you've grown the most spiritually, that the times where you've been transformed and you look more and more like Jesus is the times after difficulty. So it's not that just difficulty is a good thing. And yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's miserable. I mean, it's painful. I mean, it's horrible, but but there is something good in the midst of it. So is it good or is it bad? Yeah, both. (laughs) Because God is wanting to use the trials of life And some he caused, and some he just allows to happen in your life. But he's going to use all of that in your life to bring about a result, to remove the chaff of your life, to remove that fleshly, selfish, arrogant, prideful part of our lives so that Christ might be seen. That is his ultimate aim, to conform us to the image of Christ. Well, how does that take place? Threshing, tribulation. Well, no wonder Paul says this is a good thing. In fact, when you look at this idea of tribulation all through scripture, again, it's always a positive thing. So let me end with this. I want to talk about, hey, if we're all going to face tribulation and trials, what are three ways that we can actually triumph in the midst of this, this tribulation? How can we delight in the midst of our difficulties? How can we not just survive, but thrive in the midst of the trials and the difficulties and the pressures of life? Again, Paul says, hey, the moment your life is wrapped up in the message, hey, the moment your life is declaring one thing, God is going to use your life as a declaration of himself and his suffering to minister to this world. But as you minister to the world and you have that one message of your life, the world's going to put pressure upon you. In fact, the church is probably going to put pressure upon you. And they're just not going to like you being radical all in on Jesus. So how do we then triumph in the midst of our tribulations? Three quick ideas. Number one, know the purpose of the pruning. Uh, When you turn to John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch. And every branch that abides in me, Jesus says, will be pruned. And I I would look at Jesus Jesus, if I was one of the disciples and said, Jesus, if I'm in you, life should be easy. He says, no, life actually gets harder. There's a pruning process, a sanctifying process process that takes place in your life. Why? So that your life might bear more fruit, the fruit of the vine. Uh, Look at James chapter 1. This is what James says. He says, "'Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing.'" One of the ways that we can triumph in the midst of our tribulation is actually knowing the whole purpose of the trial. Why is God allowing us to go through the difficulty? Why are we allowed to go through the struggle and the suffering and the pain and the agony? God is doing something in us. And and James says that it is testing our faith and it's producing endurance. It's producing patience so that you would be complete, perfect, lacking in nothing if I can read the Romans passage again that I just read, Paul says that, hey, the reason we can exalt or boast or brag about our tribulations is that we know that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about proven character and proven character brings about hope and hope does not disappoint. So if you are in the middle of tribulation and trials and difficulty, you've got to know the purpose of that pruning. If you know the reason why you're going and how God's gonna use all of that, if you, if you recognize that, yeah, the, the oxen hooves and, and the threshing sled is not enjoyable in, in the moment, and yet the value of the wheat comes forth out of the tribulation, when you know that God is working greater patience and character and hope and faith within your life, then you can endure through the difficulty and say, God, thank you that I have the privilege Of walking through this trial, so that you would take me like Plato and shove me into a mold and conform me to the image of Christ. And that anything that doesn't fit into that mold called Jesus, you're gonna remove. And so, Lord, even though I'm being stripped down, and even though I'm just going through trials and problems and pain, Lord, I can thank you because I know the purpose and what you were bringing about as a result of my suffering which is more and more of Jesus in my life. So, Lord, take away my flesh. Take away my, my, my carnal nature. Take, take away my sin. Take, take away my, my selfishness. Take away all that fleshly stuff in my life. And again, we're not talking flesh, like, like your physical body. We're talking about that sinful, selfish nature of our heart that Paul calls the flesh. That when that is stripped and removed, Lord, you could be more seen. So, Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. Get me out of the way so that Jesus would be seen and evident in and through my life. You have got to know the purpose of the pruning if you're going to delight in your difficulty and triumph in the midst of your tribulation. Uh, That's number one. Number two is to celebrate in all circumstances. We are told that regardless of whether things are good or bad or ugly, you are called to rejoice. You are called to leap for joy. You are Call to keep your gaze upon Jesus Christ, and to keep your—or maybe I'll say it this way—as you keep your gaze upon Jesus Christ, allow His life, thereby His peace and His joy, to fill your life and to bring comfort and hope in the midst of that trial. Which means you can celebrate in every circumstance. First Thessalonians five, Paul says, "This rejoice always," and that word in Greek "always" literally means "always." So, whether it's good or bad or ugly, we're always called to rejoice. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, there should be no circumstance, no situation, no trial, difficulty, hardship, or pain where you are not rejoicing and giving God thanks for it because you know the purpose of the pruning. Isn't it amazing that when you know the purpose, it allows you to celebrate every circumstance? Not because it's fun. Not because this is the most happiest thing you've ever experienced, but because your gaze is fixed upon Jesus, and He Himself is our peace, Ephesians two fourteen. He is our joy, Psalm sixteen verse eleven. And because He is our joy and our peace, we can have great comfort and hope in every trial and suffering. Would you celebrate in every circumstance? Uh, 2 Corinthians seven four. I read this earlier, but Paul says, "I am filled with comfort." And I'm overflowing with joy in all our affliction. It's him, Jesus himself, that fills us with his comfort and his joy. In Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says this. And Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. At the very end of his life, Paul wrote this to, second, uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, suffer, which is the word embrace. It actually means to like bear hug. He says, suffer, bear hug, hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul says, would you wrap your arm around? Would you delight? Would you embrace the suffering that you're going through? Oh, what if you and I did that in our lives? What if we knew the purpose of our pruning? What if we would celebrate in every circumstance? And number three, what if we would place the pack upon the Lord? There's an interesting passage in Psalm 37, verse 5, which says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. The word there, to commit your way to the Lord, has this idea of to roll a burden on a pack animal. So if I went up to you and said, okay, you need to carry a thousand pounds across 500 miles of desert, could you do it? Well, you would look at me and be like, no. No. I can't. <laughs> Not even the strongest person can carry 1,000 pounds of weight across 500 miles of desert. So how on earth are you going to bear this trial, this difficulty, this tribulation? Well, the trick is, what if you didn't carry it? And the idea is you, you grab this camel or a donkey, right, a pack animal. You, you take this camel, you, you put it down on its knees, and you, you take the burden, this, this weight that you have to carry, and you roll that weight upon this beast of burden, this camel. You tie it all in. You could carry, quote unquote, that thousand pounds across 500 miles of desert, but not because you are carrying the weight, but because you've rolled the weight upon the beast of burden. God says, do you know what I want for you? Would you commit your weight to me? Would you roll your burden upon me and let me carry it through? Why? Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. God says, Hey, roll that burden that you're carrying, roll that tribulation, roll that hardship and and that that burden upon my shoulders, and I will carry for you. You still gotta walk the distance, you still gotta carry it. But it's amazing that you can walk through trials and difficulty with joy, with peace. Knowing that the God of all comfort, the God of all peace, the God of all joy is there strengthening you, enabling you. In fact, you see that even in our passage, Paul says, uh, down in verse, uh, oh, there it is, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For this purpose I labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me with power. He says, "I'm laboring and I'm striving, but it's Him who's enabling this. It's Him who's carrying this about. It's His power that's enabling me to bring this and able to strive and to toil." Hey, yes, I, I, I'm just overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, there's all this burden. Yeah, there's all this pain and distress. But whoa, the Almighty power of God is enabling me to do this," says Paul. I love what Peter says in First Peter chapter five or seven. Peter says, "Cast all your anxiety." On him because he cares for you. Do you realize that's true? We're all gonna face trials and difficulties and hardships and tribulation, but you have got to know the purpose of that tribulation. He is working his life in you, he is sanctifying your life, he's removing that chaff to bring about a greater reality of Christ through your life that you need to begin to celebrate every circumstance. Whether it's good or bad or ugly, what if you turn your gaze upon the Lord and begin to celebrate and cherish him in the midst of that problem? Give thanks in all things. What if you would take your burden, that trial, that suffering, that difficulty that you're facing, and what if you would roll that upon the back of our precious Jesus because he cares for you and he wants to be your strength. He wants to be the an the enablement, that power in your life for you to be able to do this. Can I encourage you, if you make Jesus first, if you put him as preeminent of your life, you will suffer. There will be trials. There will be difficulties. The the world is going to put pressure against you. The the church and likely your family is going to put pressure against you. But it is worth it. Because the God of all universe who lives inside of you through his indwelling Holy Spirit is going to enable you to triumph in the midst of your tribulation, to delight in the midst of your difficulties. Keep your gaze upon the Lord and rejoice in him. Well, in the next study, I'm really excited because we're going to be looking at chapter 2. entirety of chapter (laughs) 2. And we're going to take one session and look at this thing. So I would encourage you, if you want to study ahead, to read chapter 2, verse 8 through 23. And if you're interested, I've created a study guide which will kind of walk through this passage and help us kind of grab a hold of. Obviously, we're going to be going fairly quickly to cover an entire chapter in one session. But this whole chapter 2 is about the false teachings that is swirling around in the church of Colossae and Paul's argument of what is the solution for false teaching. It's really interesting to me how similar the false teaching of that day is to the stuff that we experience today, the stuff that's going on in the church. Yet Paul gives a simple solution for every single false teaching, but you're going to have to wait till next time. But if you'd like to see the study guide so you could be studying ahead or download the session notes for each of these sessions, there's a link right below this video or in the show notes of the audio. You can click that, sign up, and you can get all, all this access to resources and materials to help you study the book of Colossians and know just how to study the word of God. I would so encourage you to join me in the study in the book of Colossians. Not just to be passively listening to each of these sessions, but to engage the text yourself. I have learned that when I engage the text, when I rustle through the word, it makes a far deeper impact in my life than just listening to someone preach it. So again, I would encourage you to join me in the study in the book of Colossians. Regardless, would you go after Jesus? I know a lot of you are facing trials. I know a lot of you are just suffering and having sickness and difficulties and problems and, and just extreme situations of life. Jesus has not abandoned you. In fact, would you allow him to use this tribulation season of your life like a threshing floor to remove more of you so that more of Christ can be seen. Oh, he cares for you. Let's pray. How Lord, we thank you that you have not abandoned us regardless of what we go through. As a writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, that your promises is that you would never, ever leave. Or forsake us. So, Lord, I pray that we too would boldly proclaim that you are with us. What could man do to us if we realize that you are always with us, that you would never leave us or forsake us, especially in our trials and our difficulties? Or as Paul said in Romans eight twenty eight, that you are using all of our circumstances, you are using all of our, our difficulties, our problems, our hardships to do something good in our life according to your will which is to conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that that you would bring about a removal of selfishness, a removal of pride, a removal of that me self-centered focus. So Lord, do what is necessary to conform me to the image of Christ so this world could see you and not me. Lord, give me a great hope in the midst of my trials, knowing that when I focus upon you, when you become first and preeminent in my life, when, when, when my life is all about the centrality and the simplicity that is in you, that this world is going to put pressure and persecution. It is going to heap trials and difficulties and pain in my life. And it may come from the church. It may even come from family. But Lord, you have not abandoned me. In fact, I can triumph in the midst of tribulation. I can delight in the midst of difficulty. And Lord, I pray that for those who are listening, who are going through struggles and going through pain and going through issues of life, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to turn their gaze upward, that they would know the reason, the purpose of their pruning, that they would celebrate in every circumstance and that they would roll this heavy burden not upon their own shoulders. Don't let them carry it in their own strength, but Lord, let you carry it And Lord, I pray that your glory and your renown and your majesty would be seen ever more through the life, whether the problem goes away or whether it doesn't. Lord, may you receive the glory. And Lord, we want to trust you in these days in which we live. Lord, we want to make our lives all about you, regardless of the cost it may be to our own lives. So Lord, we we cry out we need you. Lord, be preeminent, be first in every area of our lives. And Lord, may you receive all the glory and honor and praise through these weak vessels called our lives. We love you. Just thank you for all that you're doing in our lives and in these days. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen.